Alrighty. Well, good to be with you guys tonight. This is my first time at the door. Um, so, as I said, my name is Joshua Steele. I spend most of my time in Ukraine. I've been a missionary there for about 18 years. And um, so I want to share with you tonight a little bit about what we do and uh, also some thoughts that I hope will be an encouragement to you uh, to be active in evangelism. So I want to start with a word of prayer here. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the great commission that you've given us to go out into all the world. And uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us not to be weary or discouraged in that calling, but to be faithful to the very end, uh, to spread the gospel to all nations. And uh, Lord, just be with me tonight as I share a few words. Help me not to say any more or less than, uh, than you would have me to. And just encourage and build up your saints. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, so I'll start off with a couple of words about myself and my family and what we do. Um, uh, people sometimes ask us, what's it like in Ukraine? What, what do you do every day over there? Um, so I've been in Ukraine since 2001. I actually started going to Ukraine in the 90s, a little earlier than that. Um, but I've been there full-time since 2001. And in case you're not familiar with Ukraine, it's a former Soviet bloc country. And it is just on the eastern edge of what most people consider to be Western Europe. So if you go through Europe, uh, you get into Germany and then into Poland. And then if you keep going east, the very next country is Ukraine. And it's situated right there in between Russia on the east and then Europe on the west. Um, and I've been living there for quite a while. Uh, my wife is Kelsey. Um, and uh, we have five children. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> I guess my ears aren't as big as some people, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, we have five children. My oldest daughter is 13. My youngest is a little boy named David. He's two, and we are expecting a, uh, a sixth one at the end of July, so not long after I get back. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about our family and what we're doing, uh, we have a blog. Uh, it's ofreport.com, and uh, I think they're going to put that in the, uh, the show notes. So tonight I want to share a little bit with you about our work in Ukraine, um, and as I start that, I, wanna, I want to talk about what I think is the greatest need on the mission field today. And of course, when we say the mission field, we, in America, we tend to think about the mission field as a place that's over there on the other side of the ocean. That's where mission work happens. Uh, but if you've read your Bible at all, uh, you know that the mission field is all around us. The mission field is anywhere that people don't know Christ. And if, you can't, if you're ever thinking about getting involved in missions or being a missionary or being in evangelism and you aspire to that kind of like a higher level, the place to start is right where you live, your neighborhood, Lobelville or Fort Worth, where I'm from. Um, so I want to talk about what I think is the greatest need. Now, missionaries, and I've been a missionary for a while, and I've visited churches and talked with people, and one of the biggest questions we get asked is, what do you need? Um, we've kind of developed that paradigm in evangelical circles. We have, the, we have the home folks that just kind of stay at home and go to church, and then we have the missionaries that come in from time to time. We ask them what, we, what they need. We give to their, their, uh, their stuff. And there's a lot of things you could talk about uh, in terms of needs for missionaries. One would be vehicles or computers or just general financial support. Those are all valid things, and those, those help a lot. But I think there's a, there's a, more, a more fundamental, broader need that we see in, in the Scriptures. And if you look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, this is a well-known passage. And to me, this is classic because this is a scenario where you have Christ himself as it were, looking over the world and musing to his disciples about this very question. What is needed? We have so much darkness around us, so many people that don't know the Lord who are on their way to hell. What is the need? And we're about to hear it from the lips of Jesus himself. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38 says this, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Side note, I think that's interesting. We tend to... Um, 
we tend to downplay the role of emotions and feelings a lot. We, we sort of poo-poo them as just ah, unreliable. We're all about facts and so forth today. But it's interesting that Jesus was moved. When he, when he looked out and he saw people who didn't know him, who were in darkness, who were on their way to hell, that was how the, that was how the Bible described his reaction. He didn't, he didn't just pull out some stats and some, some data in his mind. He was moved. He had emotion. He had compassion for those people. I think, that's, I think that is significant. And I think that is a, that is a reaction that, that we need to not forget, that people that are around us that we encounter every day, they are on their way to a terrible doom, and that, that should be moving. But anyway, reading on, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And then what did he say? So, go raise money, <laughs> or go get more computers, build more technology, build a building, because we got these people scattered around, we need to get them together in a building. There was all kinds of things he could have said that would have sounded very nice in many of our own um, pamphlets and talks about missions. But what did he say? Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Of all the things he could have pointed to, that was the thing that Jesus named as the number one lack, if you will, was a lack of laborers. And for myself, I've been involved in, in missionary work and ministry on a variety of levels, but that's one thing that to this day remains, I would say, a passion of mine is encouraging other people to be involved in evangelism. I'm involved in evangelism, and there's a limited you know, scope of people that I can reach in Ukraine. I, I spend most of my time just in this western city of Lviv. I preach at a little church there. And my personal impact, I feel like, is, is somewhat limited when I compare it with the scope of the world at large. But if I can encourage Jeremiah to, you know, come with me to Ukraine, do some mission work together, and get excited. When I was younger, people did that. That's how I got hooked up with the pearls. Um, when I was, uh, I remember when I was 12, I was at this little Bible study Mike was teaching, and Debbie came up to me and said, oh, we, we had been watching some videos about mission work in Papua New Guinea from this outfit called New Tribes Missions. And Debbie came up to me after one of the videos was over, and she said, Joshua, there's a tribe out there waiting for you. You're going you're gonna to go someday. And I thought to myself, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's not me. I'm, I'm from the Steele family. We don't do that sort of thing. We're just sort of homebodies. We, we hang out in Texas, and that's about it. Um, but people like the Pearls and others encouraged me. Um, and when I started making baby steps, passing out tracks, going to a mall, talking to people, yeah, there were discouragements, there were setbacks, but there were other believers, more mature believers, who were there beside me saying, it's all right, Joshua, go again, try again, keep going, it's worth it. Um, and I think in large part, one of the reasons that I'm still involved in ministry and evangelism today is because of those small projects at the beginning, those short-term uh, outreaches. And so one of the things that we do in our ministry is an annual summer outreach. We call it, it's kind of got a long name, we call it Carpathian Mountain Outreach. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about what that is and why we do it tonight. So quick geography lesson, again, thinking about Ukraine, the Carpathian Mountain Range runs through Poland, the southwest uh, tip of Ukraine, down into Romania. It's a pretty good mountain range. If you've ever read the classics, that's where uh, the Dracula Castle is located in Transylvania. So this is a well-known European mountain range, and a good swath of it cuts through Ukraine. And there are villages, hundreds and hundreds of villages, dotted all over the Carpathian Mountains of Ukraine. And the people that live in those villages are, are a very different culture than the people who live in the cities. In the large cities like where I live in Lviv, 
there are actually quite a number of evangelical churches, and a person who lives in the city has a decently good chance of hearing the gospel at some point. But a lot of these villages in the mountains are very isolated. Uh, that's becoming less so now. There's some internet and cable TV and things coming in there, but definitely a huge difference there. And so what we do every year is we go into these villages. We'll go to a village, and usually a village consists of one or two roads with a sprinkling of houses along each side. There will be several main buildings. There will be a couple of small uh, stores, like general stores. Um, there will probably be a church, either Greek Catholic or Orthodox. Uh, on occasion, there's two, but most often there's just one. And there will be the, uh, like the uh, city council building, and they'll have a community center. Just a little community center where people get together, and most often it's teenagers uh, late at night doing disco clubs, but it's, a, it's just a small room kind of like this with a stage and some chairs. So what we'll do is we'll go there, we'll talk with the uh, village head, the guy who's in charge of that village, and make arrangements to go and show a film. Later we'll come back, we will invite people in the village to come to the film, we show the film, and then when it's over we step up and we preach the gospel, we invite them to join our Bible correspondence course, we give them copies of Good and Evil, things like that. But along with that, we invite young guys from the States to come over and stay with us for about a month and do this with us. Every weekend, they drive to the mountains with us. We camp out. There's not a lot of places to stay. They don't have nice hotels in these villages. So we camp out in the mountains. We talk to people. And this year, um, the project is going to take place in mid-June. And this will be our 12th project. We've been doing this since 2006. And every year, guys come over and they spend several weeks with us learning what it means to do mission work in a foreign country. Now, our group can't teach everything there is to know about missions. Wherever you go in the world, things are going to be a little bit different. There's different cultures, there's different resources, there are different limitations. But we have guys that come over, and when they get there, they're immediately dropped into an, into an environment where they're out of their comfort zone. Nobody speaks their language, for starters. You, you just you know, forget telling somebody about the gospel. You can't even ask where the orange juice is or <laughs> how to get to the bathroom. Completely foreign language. Um, and for, usually guys will get there, and the very first week, like literally a day or two after they get off the plane, we take them to the mountains for the first outreach where we pass out invitations for the first film showing that we're going to do. And on the way down, we teach them a couple of key phrases, things like, here, this is for you, or this is an invitation to a film showing, um, please call off your dog, things like that. And... As soon as we get to the village, we break them up in teams of two and we send them out. And like, usually, you know, 48 to 72 hours after they get off the plane, they're in a village in the Carpathians knocking on someone's door where they don't even know the language to hand them an invitation to come to the film. And of course, the idea is to try to interest as many people as possible to come to this film showing. Um, so we do that on the weekends. During the week, we visit uh, cities, more larger urban areas, and we put out literature in very large quantities. Usually, um, we, depending on the size of our team, we can put out you know, anywhere from eight to 10,000 pieces of literature a day. And usually these are invitations for people to receive a free copy of Good and Evil or to sign up for our Bible correspondence course. So the guys will do that with us for several weeks. We also hold a one-day missions training conference. Our, our, our program is like 99.9% .9 out in the bushes, you know, on the streets, hands-on stuff, and 1% or 0.1% or whatever uh, classroom training. So we have, a, we have a missions training conference there, and we send these guys back to the States with uh, hopefully encouraged and equipped to continue on and be involved in evangelism. Um, and if you would like to learn more about our project, we have a website just for that. It's called cmoproject.org. 
Um, CMO is, again, for Carpathian Mountain Outreach, cmoproject.org. And I would encourage you, if you're a young man, 17, 18 years or older, check that out and consider joining us uh, one year for CMO. I think, uh, I know when I was a teenager and I was able to take part in outreaches like that, it changed my life. Um, it gave me perspective that I don't think I ever would have had uh, just sitting in the state. So I would encourage you to do that. And maybe if you're not a young man, maybe you're a parent or you're a young lady, maybe you know somebody who would, who would uh, be a good fit for this project. Tell them about it. Give them the website. We have a nice video out there that explains all about the project and how it works, and uh, we'd love to get you involved. So continuing on in the, the vein of encouraging you, whoever you are viewing this tonight, uh, as a believer, to be involved in evangelism. I'd like to share with you a couple of small excerpts from our missions training conference. This is material that we teach the guys, again, with the purpose of encouraging them to be involved in evangelism. Um, so to start with, I'd like you to think about evangelism in general. Someone just said, hey, Christian, you need to be involved in evangelism. You need to be witnessing. You need to be preaching. What does that mean? That seems like a very broad topic. Like, okay, there's Lobelville out there. Now go win those people to Jesus. Well, how do you do that? Um, so for the sake of example, I'd like you to think about evangelism in general as being broken down into two major modes or categories, two major approaches of how you could do it. And for the sake of our talk tonight, we're going to call that proclamation and persuasion. And to illustrate those from the Bible, I want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture here. So open with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Of course, we have a lot of examples in Acts of uh, people witnessing and preaching and evangelizing and how that looked. And this first passage uh, we're going to look at, we'll say, is an example of proclamation, mode one or category one of uh, how we could do evangelism. It says, um, and this is a time after some of the initial persecution was coming down. Stephen has just been stoned. The church is under a lot of pressure. We often talk about how that Jesus told them initially to go out, and they sort of sat around, and then we surmise that God allowed this persecution to sort of scatter them. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So what were they doing? They were proclaiming. Um, to put it another way, again, for the sake of example, we'll say that proclamation is essentially what I'm doing right now if I was actually just preaching the gospel. It's putting out the word to a large number of people, whether that's standing behind a podium, say, on the street and preaching, or whether that's passing out you know, 10,000 tracts with a team. You have a, you have a, a brief, to-the-point message, and you're blanketing it across a large audience to as many people as you can hit. So that's one way of doing it. A second mode or category of evangelism is what we'll call, for the sake of example, persuasion, something more one-on-one -on -one or personal. So let's look at Acts chapter 24, and we'll see an example of when Paul uh, practiced that. Acts chapter 24 and verses 24 through 25. Now, this is after he's been taken prisoner, he's in the custody of the Romans, and he's standing before one of these governors, uh, this guy named Felix. And in verses, Acts 24, verses 24 through 25, it says, After certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. I think in that, Paul was in the custody of the Romans, but what he had to say and what he represented, it would appear was something of a novelty to the Romans. They were like, oh, okay, this is something new. Let's hear what this guy has to say. Uh, and they put him out there and let him talk. And in verse 25, it says, And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. 
So Paul had what we'll call a, a persuasion experience. He wasn't so much preaching to the crowds, although it would, it would seem there was a lot of people that maybe could hear him, but he was having a conversation with this guy, Felix. And when we think about witnessing and evangelism, you can see those two contrasts. There are sometimes when you're proclaiming, you're hitting a wide audience, and there are other times when you're sitting on a park bench or in an airport and you're talking to someone one-on-one. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start there. With that in mind, I want to ask a question that relates back to what I started with in the beginning. What do you suppose is the greatest hindrance to the furtherance of the gospel? To answer that question, I want to use as an example a good friend of mine named Nathan Day. For many years that I've been serving in Ukraine, a fellow that's been serving kind of as my right hand with me all the time is this guy named Nathan Day. Nathan's a missionary. And as we know in the scriptures, God has, has committed the propagation of the gospel to people. He doesn't send angels down to tell people about Jesus. He doesn't come down and do it himself. Yes, we have the Word of God. Someone can just read the Scriptures and hear the Gospel. But by and large, God's strategy for advancing the Gospel is people. It's, it's preachers and evangelists and you know, pe- believers going out and sharing the Gospel. Obviously, it's important then that those missionaries be enabled, that we stand behind them, that we support them, that we do what we can to clear the path so that they can keep going forward. Um, and so for the sake of example, let's think about Nathan as our classic stereotypical missionary. Nathan's over there in Ukraine right now. I'm, I'm hanging out in the U.S. <laughs> He's over there doing the work. He's putting the gospel out. So what, what would be the things, if we were going to try to foresee obstacles uh, or, or hindrances, what, what do you think would be the greatest hindrance to Nathan getting the gospel out? Well, one thing that people bring up all the time is a lack of money. Uh, it, it, more and more, it seems like mission work and money in many people's minds are just directly connected. If I, had, if I just had enough money, I could win everybody. So, but yes, a lack of money could be a hindrance to Nathan. If he didn't have enough money to pay his rent or buy groceries or, or uh, pay for his internet connection, that could hinder him. But that's not the greatest hindrance that he could experience. What about a lack of Bible knowledge? Someone might say, well, I'm I'm not well trained in the scriptures. I'm, I'm a new believer. Or I haven't had a lot of training, so you know that hinders me. A lack of Bible knowledge could be a hindrance, but it's not the greatest one. Lots of people have gotten their feet wet and become very effective very quickly in evangelism without having to go through seminary and have long years of, of training. The, the gospel is simple. The gospel is not some deep science. It's a very simple thing. In fact, in my experience, one of the one of the greatest complexities about the gospel for the unbeliever is its simplicity. It's so simple that the unbeliever sees it and he thinks, that, that can't be right. <laughs> There's got to be more to it than that. Um, so a lack of Bible knowledge could be a hindrance. What about a lack of persuasive t- talent or charisma? Some people say, well, I, I'm just, I can't talk to people. I can't persuade people. I, I'm not very good at thinking on my feet or um, uh, putting my ideas out there, convincing someone to come around to my point of view. That could be a hindrance, maybe, and you can work on that. Um, but the, none of those things are the greatest hindrance to the gospel, say, in our example with regard to Nathan. The greatest hindrance to the gospel would be not a lack of money, lack of Bible knowledge, lack of talent, any of those things. It would be a lack of Nathan himself. Think about this from Satan's point of view. Satan could try to attack Nathan by cutting his support off or by, I don't know, attacking his confidence. But if he can just get Nathan to shut up and go away, that is his greatest advantage. Because once you as a believer, Nathan, you, me, once we stop talking, stop speaking, Satan wins because the gospel stops going forward. Now, why do people do that? I've seen a lot of people that got involved in evangelism. They went out, they they came to CMO, for example, and they spent a month with us running around, passing out tracks, did all this stuff, went back home and just kind of folded. Why do people do that? Why does it stop? What, What brings a person from the point where they're opening their mouth, they're speaking, they're sharing the gospel, they're propagating it, 
to where they're not doing that anymore. They're just sitting at home, kind of playing church. Well, a couple of things I think are fear and discouragement. If you've ever done any evangelism at all, whether that's passing out tracts or, or whether that's you know, the persuasion side one-on-one or whether that's some kind of mass proclamation, you have had a discouraging experience, a time when somebody made fun of you, laughed at you, um, resisted you in some way that was very unpleasant. And I want to share a couple of, of stories from my life that I think illustrate um, how this can look. When I was a kid, or when I was, when I was a teenager, we used to go down into downtown Fort Worth and pass out tracks. In fact, we had this one track from Ray Comfort called the, it's called the, the Smart Card. This little card, roughly the size of a business card, some of you may have seen it. It was mostly blue. It said Smart Card at the top and had a big red square in the middle. And under the red square, it said, place your thumb firmly on this square for like five seconds and if the color changes to this bluish green color, then that means you're a good person. And of course, it was just a printed red ink square, it wasn't gonna change. And the idea was to convince people that they were not good people. And we, uh, <laughs> we would pass these things out. I would get kids from my church together. We'd go down to Fort Worth and we'd pass out tracks and talk to people. And we'd, sometimes we'd just hand people tracks. And if we could, we'd try to find opportunities for personal conversation. And this one time we were going along handing out tracks. And this guy, we were just walking and handing them out as we went, these little smart cards. And this guy comes running up behind us, and he's waving his card, and he says, hey, you gave me a defective one. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> so we talked to him a little bit. Um, but one, one evening we were out, and I stopped by a table of some college students who were talking, and I tried to talk to them about the Lord. And I tried to you know, do the classic presentation, give them the law, whatever. And it turns out one of these guys was a Ph.D. candidate. And wow, you talk about somebody who was arrogant to the highest degree. Um, this guy was super arrogant, and all his friends were arrogant because they were at the same table with him. And they, they essentially said to me, okay, look out, you know, you, you crazy religious fanatic. We have knowledge here. We know what things are about, and we don't want to hear what you have to say. And they finally just ran me off. They, they made fun of me. They mocked me. Every kind of negative experience you can imagine happening in, a, in an evangelism encounter, it happened right there. So that's, that's one type of encounter you might have if you try to witness to people. A contrasting story that I want to tell you is about a guy that um, started coming to one of our English clubs in Ukraine. He started coming because uh, he was suspicious, and uh, some of his kids wanted to come, and he wanted to see, you know, what, why we were giving free English lessons if we were slipping something into their tea, whatever. He kept coming, and one thing led to another, and he began to ask questions about the Lord. We would we would do some Bible teaching at the at the English club, and one thing led to another, and one day he came to my house and sat down with me at the table, and. He was open, and he wanted to know about the Lord. What was different? How do I, how do I, he didn't exactly verbalize, like, how do I know that I'll be with the Lord after I die, but he was, he was moving that way. And I opened the scriptures, and I shared with him the gospel, and we sat there for a couple of hours, and that was one of the highlight experiences for me in sharing the gospel with somebody. If anybody, if I ever thought that I could have seen somebody get saved, you know, salvation is something that happens in the heart. It's a it's a, it's a mysterious secret operation that God does. It's not something we do. Um, it's not a checkbox on a, on a card. But if I ever thought that I just saw somebody come to know the Lord, it would have been that day. This guy came into my house, one guy, and he went out praising the Lord and rejoicing in his salvation. So that's, a, that's kind of a different scenario. Now, let me ask you, if, if you think about the possibility of going out and getting involved in evangelism, talking to people, which of those two scenarios would you like to be involved in? The, the arrogant PhD who mocks you and runs you off from his table and makes you feel like you're about that big? 
or this glorious experience where you're sitting with an open person who has questions and who's prodding and asking and seeking and you're opening the scriptures and you're going through Romans and all of a sudden the lights come on and hallelujah, they get saved. We'd all like to have the positive experience. But you come to find out that life is not all those positive experiences. And the question is, what are you going to do when those negative ones come? Are you going to get discouraged and say, I can't do this, I must be doing something wrong. People aren't getting saved. I, you know, I tried to do this, I tried to do that. Um, you know, I've, I've, I don't think tracks work, why not? Well, I passed out 200 of them and nobody's responded to me. Um, and I think one, one of the areas where people go wrong is they build all of their initial efforts around this idealistic idea that I'm just going to have this string of glorious, positive persuasion experiences. I'm going to go out the first day and just like eight to five every day, I'm going to win people to Jesus and they're all going to, they're all going to repent. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. And folks, maybe there's a place in the world where you can go and just win people straight like that and have all those positive experiences eight to five. I'd love to go there. But most of the places I've ever been in the world, which is quite a few, um, many people are negative, at least at the beginning. They reject. So with that said, going back to this, this two-category mode, I want to give you a piece of practical advice that's worked well for me that I think can be helpful in avoiding tanking in discouragement, having two or three of these negative experiences and just saying, okay, I'm, I'm done. I can't be mocked like this. this. I must be doing something wrong. Effective, I believe, that effective Bible-based evangelism involves a focus on mass proclamation punctuated by calculated efforts at individual persuasion. In other words, in our ministry, the, the majority of what we do is focused on spreading the gospel to as many people as far across the board as we can. And as we do that, we pray for what are called divine appointments. You've probably heard that little phrase. It's a nice little cliche in the Christian world, divine appointments. You know, times when God... I, I believe that, that that encounter I had with that man named Vasil in my living room uh, when he became a believer, was a divine appointment. It's where God took steps. He arranged things, perhaps, to bring us together. And if you are faithful at the proclamation part, whether that's putting out tracts or preaching, trying to reach as many people as you can, not stumbling, not getting discouraged when, when you have some little experience that doesn't go right, your chances of, of finding the people that are open to the gospel go up dramatically. In Mark 16, 15, well-known passage, um, it says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That, the construction of that command very strongly implies this focus on mass proclamation. Go as far as you can, hit as many as you can. Which brings me to the conclusion of the point that I'd like to make. And this, this, this lesson that I'm going to finish with, I think, is one of the most important for me, it's been one of the most important concepts that I've understood on the mission field. And when people ask me, like, well, why, have you ever felt discouraged? Have you ever felt like throwing in the towel and just going home and being a regular guy? <laughs> have, you ever, have you thought about stopping, you know, trying to persuade everybody all the time to, to come around and, and believe the gospel? This, this idea right here that I'm going to share with you, this thought, is probably one of the biggest things that keeps me going. And this is, this is part of the, uh, the missions training that we give the guys who come over for CMO. And I call this concept the numerous few, which is an oxymoron. Things like jumbo shrimp, Christian lawyer, if you've ever heard of those. Um, the numerous few, what does that mean? How can it be few and how can it be numerous? Let me, let me bring you to a passage of Scripture here. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14 says this, Enter ye in at the straight gate, 
For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. If you've ever been involved in track distribution, you begin to think about numbers very quickly. Nathan Day, this guy that works with me, is a very numbers-oriented guy. He just, if, he can, if he can solve a problem with a spreadsheet, he will. He lives in spreadsheets, numbers, stats, percentages. He knows how many tracks we've passed out, where we've been, what kind of tracks we've passed out in what city, what our response rates were for this kind of track in that city versus this other kind of track in another city. He keeps track of all the numbers. And it's very, it's very helpful. And if you've ever been involved in that, it's not very long before you start to question, like, okay, I'm putting out all this effort, I'm telling people about Jesus, or I'm passing out tracts, whatever I'm doing, what kind of effect is this having? How many, how many people are just throwing my tracts in the trash can versus people that are reading them, thinking about it? Or maybe you've thought this, when I get to eternity and I'm standing before God, what's my tally going to be? I mean, how, of all the people I've talked to in my life, or all the people I've ministered to, how many of them really got saved? How many of them really came to know Jesus in some way because of what I did, because of going to CMO or going over to Ukraine or just being faithful to, uh, to witness wherever I was. And it's encouraged. I think most of us don't need to feel like we have a 100% success rate, but usually if you're involved in any kind of enterprise, you need some assurance that at least you're having some effect. If you, if you ever get to the point where you feel like you're just throwing your sticks to the wind and you're not having any impact at all, it's extremely discouraging. And I believe that's one of the things that that drags believers down and results in this greatest hindrance that I talked about, of them becoming silent. Your silence as a believer is a huge, huge hindrance to the gospel. And this passage is interesting because it's one of the few passages I, could, I know of, or perhaps one of the best known, where Jesus specifically speaks to the results you should, you should expect. If you go out and have a big tract outreach in Nashville, for example, what kind of results should you expect? He said, Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. Those are the people that get saved after reading our tracts, right? And few there be that find that gate. Obviously, our goal is to help as many find that gate as possible. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that this statement by Christ is a challenge or what you might call a prophecy? In other words, is Jesus saying, guys, we have a problem? We have our ratios are all messed up. We have this big, huge pathway over here, and tons of people are going in the wrong gate. And we have this little tiny one. So you guys go to CMO and listen to Josh's mission conference and do what you need to do, get your act together so that we can, so that we can uh, move our numbers, so that we can lessen the, the path that goes to destruction and broaden the path that goes to life. Is that what he's saying? Is he trying to challenge us to, to do something to change the status quo? No, he's not. This is not a challenge. He's, if anything, this is a warning. He's telling you, it's, it's, like saying, it's like saying, hey guys, come to CMO and let's go out and tell people about Jesus. And by the way, just know that almost nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> almost everybody is going to reject what you have to say. Now think of it another way. What if we were to draw a pie graph? Usually when I talk, this, when I talk about this idea, I have a whiteboard. But imagine if we drew a, a big pie graph on the, on the board. And of course, the, the, the full circle represents 100%. And, and we're going to draw some fraction here where part of, the, part of the graph represents those that are going to ultimately be lost, and the other part represents those that will ultimately be saved. Based, now, Jesus didn't give us percentages here. He didn't say 50-50, 75-25. He didn't give us any numbers. But he said, many there be that go in the gate of destruction, and few there be which find it. So if we took our pie graph and divided it in half and said, okay, 50% 50 50 of the people go to hell and 50% go to heaven, would that, do you think that graph would be faithful to the text here? Well, no, that wouldn't be many and few. That'd be half and half. Okay, well, what if we tweak it just a little bit and we say, like, all right, 
60-40. 60% of people are going to go to hell and 40% are going to be saved. Well, you could say that's many and few. It's more and fewer. Um, I, again, Jesus didn't give us concrete numbers, but I don't feel like, and especially if I add in just experience, I don't feel like that's probably a faithful representation. It feels like more like maybe 80-20 or 90-10. Um, and the, the point is not to try to peg a number. Jesus could have given us a percentage and he didn't. The point is to understand that this is normal. When you go out and you share the gospel with people and you share the gospel with 10 people and only one gives you any kind of a positive response, that's in line. That's not an abnormality. That doesn't necessarily mean that you've done something wrong. Now you say, well, that, that doesn't seem like encouragement <laughs> to, to preach the gospel. How, how, I thought you were going to you know, motivate us and get us, get us going. If you're going to tell us that, all right, go out and preach the gospel, and just by the way, most people are not going to repent, what, what do I do with that? How do, I, how do I continue in my ministry with that reality in my mind and not allow myself to be dragged into discouragement that, you know, why am I even doing this? What's it? I'm never going to find anybody that wants to hear the gospel. But let me, let me throw the numbers at you just a little bit differently. Let's think again about our pie graph, but let's think about it in terms of the population of Ukraine, the country where I spend most of my time. Now, the population of Ukraine is roughly 45 million people, all right? So, so our, our big circle represents 45 million people. Now, I want to I shift our percentages way over on the pessimistic side, probably more pessimistic than I think represents reality. But let's just say for a moment that 95% of all the people in Ukraine are utterly closed to the gospel. It is a complete waste of time to talk to them. They will never read your track. They will never come to your Bible study. They will never listen to anything you have to say, completely throwing your pearls before swine if you talk to anybody in this 95% group. Let's just suppose that for the sake of example. All right. But the 5% then are people who are open. They're people who might come to your Bible study or read your tract or talk with you, eventually get saved as a result of what you're doing. 5%. Do you know how much 5% of uh, 45 million is? That's 2.25 million people. If our, if our pessimistic example is correct, and we're going to focus on Ukraine, for example, that means there are 2.25 million people out there who are ready and open that God wants us to talk to. Now, whatever ministry, church, background that you come from, think about that for a moment. Is your little group set up to handle 2.25 million people? If 2.25 million people showed up here at the door, I'd be going out that door. <laughs> um, the fire marshal would have something to say about that. Um, most of us haven't maybe considered that, that when you go to an area, the percentage of people that are open to the gospel may be small, but that percentage in terms of sheer numbers is a massive group of people. If I, if I went my whole life and, and I could say at the end of my life that I reached 2.25 million people, I would feel like I did a pretty good job. You know, that's not bad, 2.25 million people. That's a lot of folks. But now here comes the question, or the, the key, if you will. How do we find them? So again, we go to Ukraine and we say, all right, here I am. I've got my suitcases. I don't even know Ukrainian, but I'm here. I'm ready for the 2.25 million. Where do they live? Which village are they in? We don't know. They don't have signs on their forehead that says, I'm one of the, you know, I'm one of the 5%. And this, I believe, is one of the reasons why it's useful to think of evangelism in terms of these two categories, proclamation and persuasion. Obviously, we would love to get in touch with somebody from this group and have a persuasion encounter with them, be able to sit down with the Bible, open up Romans, and share the gospel with them. But you have to find them first. And they don't all live in one village. They don't have signs on their head. They don't wear a t-shirt that says, I'm part of the 5%. 
You've got to find them. How are you going to do that? With proclamation. If you're faithful in blasting the gospel out as far and wide as you possibly can, your chances of finding somebody from this group, this, this numerous few, if you will, go up dramatically. And I can't control whether somebody repents and believes the gospel. That's not up to me. That's not how it works. In fact, best I can see from the scriptures, that's not even up to God. Now, yes, God is sovereign, and God can touch a person's heart and deal with them on a far more intimate level than I can. And it's, it's not up to me to try to define God's limits on what he can or can't do in the soul of a man. But I know my job is to bring the horse to water, and whether or not he drinks is up to him. If you focus, if you understand the lay of the land, and you focus on laboring and being faithful to put that message out, to propagate the gospel en masse, as far as you can, YouTube videos, tracks, uh, talking to people, whatever you can do, reach as many, many as possible, then the math is in your favor. The stats will, will help you. And for me, that is encouraging. Because even if I happen to be surrounded on a given day with people that are all part of the 95% and they're all, you know, angry and ornery and PhD-ish, um, that's okay. I know that eventually I will find people that are in that group. And when I do, my message is ready. Focus your efforts on proclamation and be attentive to opportunities for persuasion. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. And while you do it, pray that God would open your eyes, that he'd bring you in, into contact with people who will listen to your message. And in closing, we're not going to go through the whole thing here, but I just want you to recall the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. I believe that's a classic example of what I'm trying to illustrate here, this, this difference between proclamation and persuasion. You have the sower going out, and he's casting the seed, and the seed is falling on different kinds of ground. And you have four types of ground. You have the stony ground, the thorny ground, you have the good ground, and you have the other kind of ground that you can find if you actually read the passage. I can't remember what it is. <laughs> but there are four types of ground. Of the four, only one brought forth fruit. Now, that's interesting. If we were to go with that, that would give us a 75-25% ratio, wouldn't it? A lot more optimistic than my, uh, my 95 and 5. So what is 25% of 45 million? I didn't write that in my notes, but if you've got a calculator, you can work it out. Um, so be faithful in proclaiming. Come to CMO. Get involved. Get some tracks. It's not hard. Get out there and start talking to people. Yes, there will be times when people reject you. You'll be discouraged. Keep going. Go your whole life. Never, ever, ever stop. Don't, don't stop talking. Don't stop sharing. If you fall down, get back up. God will lead you, and eventually you will find somebody that will listen, that will become saved. And you know what? It doesn't even matter if you know that it happened. It's interesting when you read in Hebrews about the various heroes of faith, God says something interesting about Abraham that, to paraphrase it, he had these great promises, and he went all his life believing God, following God, with faith in God, and he came to the end of his life and died, and he still hadn't received the promises. You may go your whole life and feel as you come to your deathbed that you haven't done a whole lot, that you know, not very many people listen to you, but you don't know. You might hand somebody a tract. That person might reject it initially, get angry and stuff it in a drawer or throw it away completely. And then years later, God can work on that person's heart and bring those words back that he heard maybe for just a few minutes. Maybe you were street preaching and you felt like nobody was listening to you and you were just making a fool of yourself. And a guy walked by and didn't even turn his head, but he heard the gospel as he passed and it stuck in his mind and God started working on him. 
And long after you're gone, with no way to contact that person, the Spirit of God draws him and the man becomes a believer and goes out and continues multiplying what you started. It's important on the one hand for us to be encouraged and to feel like we have some feedback that we're making progress. But on the other hand, God only knows the effect of what we're doing. So I want to close with this, this, last, uh, this last passage here, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24, says this, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I have felt that a lot. I have felt like a fool more than once. <laughs> Standing up in the middle of Lviv, trying to preach to people, or handing out tracts, being ridiculed. Uh, Paul said in another place that we are the, the off-scouring of the world. We are despised, and that's true. But that's the method God chose. God chose simple men and women like us to take his gospel forward. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The message that you carry, if you're a believer and you know the gospel, that simple message that you carry, that Jesus has finished it, that, um, that he died in your place, and that there's nothing for you to do, that it's all done. That simple message to many people, perhaps to the 95%, will seem folly. It will seem like religious fanaticism. And in our day, all the more. Perhaps every generation has said this, but it seems to me that just in the last even 10 years, the world has put themselves on steroids running to hell as fast as they possibly can. And we're surrounded by intellectualism, secularism, all manner of perversion. And this message to them perhaps is folly. But if you're faithful to put out that message, put it out, put it out. Don't second guess. Don't look at somebody and say, I don't think they would listen. Keep putting it out. Keep speaking. And eventually you'll find somebody of the numerous few. And to them, that message will be the power of God, the wisdom of God, and they'll come to know the Lord. So final phrase here, proclaim widely, persuade wisely, and persist regardless. Thank you for your attention. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you again for your glorious gospel. Thank you that you saved us and that, um, that you didn't stop searching, that you sent Christ to finish the work and to open the door to eternal life. And Lord, we, we rejoice and we're grateful that we have found that narrow path. And Lord, we would like to take as many with us as possible Father, don't let us get discouraged. Build us up, Lord. Remind us that this is a battle worth fighting. It's a battle we must fight. We have orders. And Lord, I pray that you would just use these few words tonight to edify and build up men and women of God who will be bold and courageous and fearless and go forward, come what may, to spread your gospel into all the world. And we thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Thank you again for your attention. God bless you.